Hi there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. How's life treating you? I hope you're settling into fall and that wherever you are, you're getting to enjoy some quality time outside to take in the changing seasons. But whether you're inside a car or your apartment or outside enjoying a wonderful hike with your dog, if you've ever wondered what it takes to be a New York Times bestselling author, or a journalist at National Public Radio, then this is definitely the episode for you, my friends. So grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage, because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest today is journalist and author Eric Weiner, the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Geography of Bliss, as well as a bunch of other wonderful books. His most recent book, The Geography of Genius, has been called Smart, Funny, and Utterly Delightful, and has been translated into 20 languages. As a longtime foreign correspondent for National Public Radio, Eric reported from more than 30 countries, from Iraq to India to Indonesia. But this is more than your average cup of joe conversation. Eric is so generous with his life experiences, his lessons learned, and his favorite quotes from Einstein and even the Bhagavad Gita. You are in for a treat, my friends. Eric, by the way, is also leading aspiring writers on an incredible adventure to Nepal next month from October 29th to November 8th. It's called the Himalayan Writers Workshop, and it's been getting rave reviews. If you're interested, check out our show notes for more. And one more note. This was one of the dozen or so earlier interviews I did months before I actually launched Time for Coffee. And so I have to apologize for the audio quality, which isn't great. I must have pressed a wrong button somewhere when we were recording. But please hang in there and give this episode a listen. I promise you, you won't be disappointed. I would say there are three stages. You need the idea stage, which is you really need to come up with an idea that you really, really love. Because writing a book is like a marriage. You've got to really love that person in the beginning because you know there are going to be some rough spots along the journey. It's the same with your, your book idea. It's got to be something that you're really in love with and that you can live with for several years. So like a marriage, you're living with this idea for many years. So it's got to have layers to it. It's got, it has to be something that you're really in love with. You can, you can dash off a two-minute CNN report or a three-minute NPR report or a thousand-word New York Times article and you know, not really be invested in it, not emotionally at least. But with the book idea, you really have to be invested. So the stage one is idea. Stage two is research, which is casting a wide net and diving wide and deep into the subject. And the great thing about writing a book is you go all in. You're just, you know, you're, you, you don't, the whole idea of writing a book as opposed to say a, a quick website or newspaper article is you want to go deep. So you can find that book about 16th century Florentine coffee if they had coffee back then, I'm not sure they did. And you can investigate it and you can really research it. And that's stage two. And stage three uh, is writing. 
Um, and it's important to make the transition from stage two to stage three. Some writers get stuck in research because it's more fun uh, than actually writing in a lot of ways. But you have to have some sort of cutoff time where you're like, this is all this stuff in front of me, all this material. This is what I have to work with. This is my clay. And now it's time to make the statue. Um, and that's the writing phase. And the fourth stage is collapsing <laughs> after, you, after you've birthed this book. I'm told that writing a book is, is a lot like childbirth, having never actually given birth. But um, apparently, labor can be very painful. And after giving birth, women swear they will never have another child, but yet they do. And same thing with the book. Afterwards, you're like, God, that was painful. I'm never doing that again. And yet I do. So clearly there's something that keeps you going. But three stages, um, idea, research, writing, fourth bonus stage, collapse. So can you take us a little bit more into those stages? You obviously hit on with your first book, what I think is becoming an Eric Weiner brand. Yeah, yeah it was. I, I can talk about that. You know, I had been a journalist for a number of years, and I was satisfied, but not fully satisfied with what I was doing. I wanted to do something with more voice, where I could really be myself. Too many times after spending a couple of weeks in Afghanistan, I'd file a bunch of reports to NPR, and my friends would hear these reports back home, but then they'd email me or call me and say, what was it really like in Kabul? Gee, if you're not conveying, if that's not coming across, even on an NPR story, something's wrong. So I wanted to write the kind of book where it's honest, where we're being honest right now. And it's what journalists say to each other over the bar about what it's really like. I, I knew it was a good idea as soon as, you know, I had lots of ideas and I couldn't settle on one. But when I came up with the geography of bliss idea, I just felt something click. I, I knew it was the right idea. Not only did it check off all the boxes, but it seemed like an honest book for me. I mean, you can't really, it's hard to separate yourself from your writing. It's got to be something that fits you. Um, you could stay in some other kind of job for many years. That's a bad fit. You can fake it, but you can't really fake it with writing. And this seemed like the right book for me. I didn't, wasn't thinking about building a brand at the time. I just wanted to write a book and one that was also more positive than journalism. We can talk about that. Journalism tends to focus on the worst of humanity. It's just the nature of the beast. And, you know, here I wanted to write a book about happiness around the world. And it's not typically the sort of thing you see on CNN or here on NPR. You know, you want to write a book that adds some value to the world. I mean, in some small way. Were you also thinking, gee, I'd like to write something that becomes a bestseller? No. I just, I wanted to make enough money writing a book to hopefully write another one. That was my only goal. I didn't want it to disappear. Every writer wants to be read, no matter what they tell you. I was not thinking bestseller. I was genuinely shocked when it got to, I think, as high as number eight on the New York Times bestseller list. It was, I'll be honest, it was a heady time. It was on the Colbert Report, Stephen Colbert and his old show. You know, I was going around the country, bookstores talking. Diane Green's show, other shows, and that wasn't, the, the satisfying part, though, to be honest, was not that I was getting some, my 15 seconds of fame, it was that it was resonating with people, and it was just this idea I came up while I was in my underwear in Kazakhstan, of all places, waiting to adopt my daughter, 
And that's when I came up with the idea. And it was just two page draft of a proposal, not even a full proposal. And to see that go from something that's a physical book you could hold, still believe in physical books, and something that's resonating with people and that they're talking about on some level, that was pretty cool. It wasn't just, you know, that some investigative report on the tobacco industry I did for NPR was getting attention. It was something that was about me to some extent. It was close to my heart. I mean, you want to want to be known, but I think you want to be known for the right things, you know, something close to your heart. And that was the most satisfying. And, you know, you don't, you know, books, you know, they, they live on. This is in a way that today's uh, BuzzFeed article doesn't. I mean, it technically lives on. You can Google it. It's out there. But I still have people writing me emails about the Geography of Bliss, which came out almost exactly 10 years ago. And that's pretty, pretty remarkable. I was just at a local bookstore, Politics and Prose, and I saw it out there on the special display area. And I took a picture because... <laughs> You know, uh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I go to the coffee shop there and hang out, and and that's that. I was having a bad morning, to be honest. It was like God, it just this chapter's not coming together, and and I saw the book there, and that was that was. Not- Take us inside how you write, how you get in the mindset. Are you one of these people who wakes up super early? Do you have a particular time you start every day? Do you block out X number of hours? Five days, six days, seven days a week. What's your yeah, strategy? The writing part. Yeah. The research part. I have recently switched to the Pomodoro technique. Are you familiar with that? I'm not, no. The challenge for writing is focus time. And it's easy to get distracted by cat videos, your Facebook feed, or it can be something, you know, supposedly constructive, paying the bills. Or even, oh, I need to do more research, that old trick. As I said, inspiration is for amateurs, which what I mean by that is you don't wait for your muse to show up. You sit down in the chair and assume she'll show up and you say, I'm going to write for X amount of time. Pomodoro Techniques is 25-minute blocks, and that's what I work with. I set the timer at 25 minutes and I say, I'm going to write 25 minutes. I am not going to check my email. I'm not going to go get up and get a cup of coffee. I'm not going to do research. I'm going to write for 25 minutes. And you can do anything for 25 minutes, pretty much. And then you give yourself a five-minute break, and then you do another 25 minutes. Um, And I try to get six, eight, ten of those in a day. And opposed to word count, some writers will say, how many words did I write today? How many weight famous? He said just 500 good words a day is is good for him. And he wrote short, good words. (laughs) But I think uh, focused time is a better gauge. I like mornings. I don't know a lot of writers do. I, I like to get up early ahead of the family, the dog, the cat, and sit down and write. Sometimes when it's still dark outside and the whole world's sleeping, and that feels like free time. It feels like less pressure than two in the air when everyone's in a meeting somewhere and you feel the end of the day coming like a freight train. So mornings, focus time. Do you feel at this stage do you trust yourself that it will come that you've built enough of a track record that even though you're having a bad day a bad week or more that i know i'm gonna get it well that's a tough question um 
I seem to be quoting Hemingway a lot, but one more time, he said, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, because he got stuck too, and that's kind of encouraging to know that Hemingway got stuck, you know? He said, looking out at the rooftops of Paris, you know, I, I know I've written before, and I will write again. All I need to do is write, write one true sentence. So look, looking out at the rooftops of Silver Spring, Maryland, I know I've written before, and I know I'll, I'll write again. So in a way, every time you sit down to write, you're facing the blank screen, in a way you're starting from zero because you know it's not like those other words you've written, the other books you've written, are, you, know, you can't just pull them out and plop them down there. That's not writing, that's self-plagiarizing. So in a way you're starting over, but in a way you're, you have to keep reminding yourself that you've done this before. And, you know, maybe athletes or, or others and creative artists, others are in the same, the same way. You have to consciously remind yourself or have others remind you, friends, don't worry, you, you've, you've written before, you'll write again. It's ultimately an act of faith. Um, I believe writing is faith in yourself that you can get the words down, faith in the universe that the, the book, the piece of writing will find its audience and find a home. There's no coasting, right? Like, I, I imagine and, and you have a certain office job, office job that covers a lot of ground, but let's just say you're in an office. You've got prompts throughout the day that are going to get you from point A to point B. There's a 2 p.m. all staff meeting. You got to be there. You show up. There's a 3 p.m. budget meeting. You know, there's that conference call at 5 p.m. you've got to be on. And uh, these give you touchstones to get you through the day. Don't really have that in writing. I mean, people might be surprised at how hands-off editors are in publishing houses for the most part. And, and certainly in this stage, the writing stage, if I just go write, maybe you have a deadline, maybe you don't. When you got some pages, as we call it, show me some pages, I'll look at it. It's not like, you know, every day you're consulting with your editor 10 times a day. It really doesn't doesn't usually work like that. You know, as I'm listening to you, Eric, I can't help but think, and I've never had this this thought before in speaking with others who write, perhaps because I've never had this kind of a deep dive into their process. But there is something incredibly courageous about putting yourself through this process over and over again yeah courageous or crazy but maybe they're often the same it, it does require it requires courage on two levels it requires the courage to sit down and think and come up with something that you can put your name to and then the courage to send it out there into the world you know oftentimes in other positions jobs people will say well don't take it personally well with writing you know it is personal even if you're writing about, oh, I don't know, U.S. policy in the Middle East, for instance, that's personal, too, because it's your words, it's your work. It's more personal if you're writing about your struggles with depression or alcoholism or whatever, but it, it, it is personal. So I don't like that expression, you know, don't take it personally, it's just a job. I think if you're not taking it personally, you have the wrong job. You should take it personally whatever you're doing. I happen to be writing a, a chapter in a new book right now that's about uh, attention and the power of attention. And really, 
that's what we, you bring to your work, your, your attention, your attention to the page, your attention to the person you're talking to, whether you're, you're a landscape architect or a writer or working at McDonald's, you know, pay attention because I think when we're in a fully attentive state, we're at our happiest. That is also, I think, part of the art of or why people meditate, to be in the moment. Right. To be present and to be attentive. Um, and not in a furrowed brow, clenching your jaw sort of way, you know, desperately trying to come up with a solution to a problem. It requires a degree of patience and faith. And if you're starting out in your career, you don't know how it's going to end out, end up. Um, so you have to have faith in your decisions and patience that, you know, I got lucky with my first book. Some authors is not until their fourth and fifth book. And my second book, you know, it's not like you're, you're set for life. Your first book did very, very well when it was translated to 20 languages. That was great. Um, I'll be honest, the second book did not do nearly as well, you know. And then you worry, am I a one-hit wonder, sophomore slump? You know, to some extent, you really are only as good as your last work. Or you have to just short-circuit that whole crazy thought process and just focus on the work and not how it's received. What would you say your superpower is? What is it that makes you different, special, that you kind of hold near and dear? You mean, in, in terms addition, my ability to read minds. Because <laughs> right now I'm reading yours. <laughs> and you're way distracted. <laughs> Um, superpower, boy. Now, what, what do you mean by that? I mean, I, I, th I think you mean, what, what do you mean? I mean, I think I'll put it on myself. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that has helped me over the course of my life through the four professions that I've been through is the fact that I'm very empathetic. That has served me well. It's not something that I actively cultivated. It's who I am. Not sympathetic, but empathetic. I think I'm also sympathetic. Right. They're not mutually exclusive. Okay, I would say my, my superpower is an ability to what I call crap cut. To crap cut. I'm a crap cutter. I, I cut out all, all the crap and cut to the essence of whatever it is. The essence of the topic the essence of the story, the essence of conversation. I have an ability to, to cut through the crap and get to the to the essence. I mean, I was once in Jordan where late King Hussein was, they were holding elections. He was the king and they were holding elections for the parliament and all the journalists were there really, you know, nitpicking the, the parliamentary vote and which party. And I said in my report, that the bottom line is nobody was running for king. And my Jordanian friend was like, wow, now I never really thought about that. You're right, nobody's running for king. That's just one small example. I think it goes along with the sense of empathy. If you're going to be empathetic, you have to cut to the heart of the matter of what, what is troubling someone, um, what is at stake, what's the big idea. As I've gotten older, I've gotten increasingly interested in the world of ideas and less and less interested in the machinations of politics and wars and I've become much more of an idea person 
Um, and I think I've always been that way. And I don't like fancy words. I don't like academic jargon. Really hate it, actually. And uh, I'm a fan of uh, Einstein who said, or was it Richard Feynman? One of those physicists who said, um, if you can't explain something uh, simply, you don't understand it. And I think that's very, very true. And I think I have an ability to do that. So a superpower, maybe. That's a wonderful, a wonderful gift. It really is. So Eric, I want to flash back mm-hmm. to when you were at the University of Maryland. Right. And you majored in English literature. Ooh. And you really are to this day now, I think I've done a dozen interviews thus far, the first person that I've had the pleasure of interviewing who's major in college actually has some semblance to the career that you are in today. Yeah, but the irony is if I could go back, I wouldn't have majored in English literature. Um, I, I became much more interested in history social sciences, psychology, sociology, um, especially history, philosophy. I mean, if I could go back now, I would choose history, philosophy, one of those two, maybe sociology. So there's the irony, you know. And why is that? Because I've, I've become more interested in the, those ideas, the ideas that you get in history and philosophy. And there are philosophers and historians who write very well. I'm more of a nonfiction person than a fiction person, always have been. Yeah, if I could do it again, that's one of the things I would have done differently. But you're right, I guess there is a connection there. And what about what you did when you were in college? I don't know if there were extracurriculars that you were involved in, different internships, things that enriched the experience for you that you'd want to share with with our listeners. See, right off the bat, just to be totally honest and blunt, I was not a good student. I wasn't a terrible student, but I was not a great student. And there's that old expression that college is wasted on the young. It's unfortunately true. I would have gone back and I would have cared less about what the girl in the dorm across the hall thought of me. And I would have really done what I'm doing now, which is immersing myself in books and ideas. I don't know why, but I wasn't I wasn't who I am now in the terms of really loving ideas and words. And I had this weird, only really skill I had as a college student is I could fly airplanes. Um, it's a weird thing, but I I was flying an airplane. I flew an airplane by myself before I drove a car by myself. And so that was that one thing that distinguished me. I could write an English sentence and I can fly airplanes. And so my first job out of college was naturally with Flying Magazine, the world's most widely read aviation magazine. And did you know, first of all, how did you get that job? Well, it turns out there aren't that many recent college graduates who can write an English sentence and fly an airplane. So for four years, I I wrote about flying it, and I did weird things. I, I flew a blimp. I flew upside down and took an aerobatics course, flew in the cockpit of a United plane from New York to Tokyo. And I did uh, just all kinds of weird stuff like that and wrote about it. I had the chutzpah to write to an editor at the New York Times who I knew was a pilot. He was a business editor, but I knew he was a private pilot. I knew he read Flying Magazine. His name was Bill Stockton. And I said, Bill, I write a Flying Magazine. I know you read us. I know flying. I know aviation. And I know journalism and writing. And I know your aviation reporters retiring soon. You need someone like me. Didn't hear from him. Finally, he wrote to me and said, are you willing to try a trial assignment for us? I'm like, sure. 
73 ideas, he chose one, filed, reported the heck out of it, filed the story, didn't hear from him. Weeks and weeks go by, I assumed I didn't get the job. Walking down 2nd Avenue in New York one morning, I stop at the newsstand, I see the New York Times, and there's my article on the front friggin' page. And then he called the email for me a job. So, and I was 26 years old, and it was incredible. But that segues nicely to the worst part of my career. The worst times often follow the best times. So the worst, you're and saying? Two years later, I was Icarus flying too close to the sun. They had me on full-time, but in some contract. One day they fired me, laid me off after two years. And so I found myself at 28, you know, having suddenly reached like this pinnacle of journalism and out on the street. And my ego took a big bruising because, you know, okay, there's an economic downturn, excuses, but at some level you take it personally. I'm not good enough. And it's the New York Times. It's the authority figure, right? You know, you're being fired by the Podunk News. You're being fired slash laid off, whatever, by the New York Times. And so that was rough. So how did you get through it? Um, well, first, uh, despair, a little bit of that. And uh, then I picked myself up and said, well, there worse things than being a former New York Times reporter at the age of 28. And I started just freelancing here and there, which you could do back then and you could still do now. And that means just one article at a time. Dallas Morning News, some little travel magazine here or there. And then I approached NPR. I don't know how it came about. said, can I do a story for you? Fell in love with the spoken word and its sound. And with not just what people say, but how they say it. It was fun. Radio was and is fun. And that was stage two was launched. You know, I had to go through the dark night of the soul. And there was no guarantee of anything. So you were scrappy. Yeah, I, I guess so. You have, you have to be. You, you have, have to... to be. And I was, I was at that stage, which is a good stage to have, I was, I wouldn't look for payback or payoff. I mean, I would just, I was willing to do anything and to work hard. And, you know, I probably a bit of a workaholic. I really worked hard, but it, it was fun. And there's that cinematic quality of doing a radio piece. And, you know, you're sort of doing a little mini film every time you do an NPR story. And that was fun. And that took me around the world for 10 years. And just if you could kind of encapsulate having been a foreign correspondent, what the, the joys, the trials and tribulations are of that? Well, the joys are easy. You're seeing the world and someone else is paying for it. Okay. Let's just get right. Let's just be clear. I mean, you are, you are, but you're not just seeing the world as tourists, right? You're seeing the world up front in a way that really matters. You are going to a country, be it Sri Lanka or Indonesia, and you're just saying to yourself, what's interesting here? And unlike the local reporters, you're, you can step back and say, you know, what's interesting for my audience? What, what, what do I find interesting? And that feeling that if you don't tell that story about what happened in that village in Aceh in Indonesia, maybe it won't get told. Simply living overseas, and this is true as a journalist or maybe any kind of expat life, you, you wake up every morning and just the fact that you're living in another country, another culture, is an automatic adventure. Automatically you wake up and you know something is gonna happen that day where you see something or you hear something 
and you're going to be like, what the fuck is that? I've never seen that happen before. And if you're curious, and if you're a journalist, you're curious, you're going to investigate it. And there's no distinction between your professional life and your personal life. And that's in a, in a good way. And I was in India, which is my first posting and still my favorite country in the world. One day I noticed like my staff, I had a staff, can you believe it? You know, my the office assistant and other people weren't there. Where's everyone? And then I opened the window to look outside and I see there's this stream of people just milk pails in their head heading to the local temple. Like, where's everyone going? And they're like, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. I'm like, what? They're like, the gods are drinking the milk. So I grab my radio gear, my microphone, and I run down to the temple. And sure enough, every people are feeding milk to these statues of the Hindu gods. And it appears that the that gods are drinking. They sort of disappeared. And interviewed people and did a story. And physicists were on Indian television saying it wasn't really a miracle. It was capillary action or something else. And... And that was a story. It was about rational India versus irrational India and miracles. And it happened right outside my front door. And to me, that's, it doesn't get any better than that, you know. And I was different from other foreign correspondents in that I didn't really care for war. Um, that sounds weird, I know. But as, as you know, some journalists, really, there's this adrenaline rush to covering a war. And it's important and it's dangerous. But it's also, in a way, easy in that the drama is built in. What interested me about living overseas was looking at the world as a laboratory of ideas. Like there are universal problems like how to educate a child, um, how to be happy, all these things. Out there in the world outside of the U.S., there are all these creative solutions, different ways of counting votes, uh, different ways of, of solving traffic problems. And that's really what interested me. And at some point, I got tired of wars. And I got tired of this conflict and I got tired of the negativity, to be honest. And I made a shift. So for the final moments here, mm. if you could give advice to a younger Eric right. who was still in college, you've already talked a bit about what you would study, but going outside the academics, perhaps. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give him based on the wisdom that you have today? In a few words, chill the F out. Just chill out. Just slow down. Don't be in such a hurry. Have some adventures that will may not lead to anything. Be willing to waste time. I know that sounds crazy, but be willing to waste some years because you can do that when you're young and you can't do that as easily when you're older. And you never know where those quote-unquote wasted years will end up. You know, one one thing I regret a little bit is I, I, we talked about India, how much I loved living there. And I, I really did. And I was sent overseas at the age of 29 or 30 to, to Delhi. And it was a great adventure. But I felt, and maybe as a former foreign, foreign correspondent yourself, you've experienced this sometimes where you weren't in the thick of the big story. Like your stories didn't matter as much as the person in London or the person in Jerusalem. Because back then, India was not such a big story at all. And I had that ambitious, ambitious streak in me. And after two, two and a half years only in India, the party leader called and said, we have an opening. And there's a promotion to a full staff position from contract in, uh, in Jerusalem. Do you want to take it? And I took it. 
And I took it for the wrong reasons. I took it because I thought it would be better for my career. I thought I'd be more visible. The truth is, I didn't enjoy it as much. It was the work was grueling. Um, you were under a microscope scope in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It was less of an adventure. Still great, but if I could do it over again, I would say, just you know what, you love India, stay here. What's the rush? You know, if, if you're making a decision, ask yourself, are you doing it for extrinsic or intrinsic motivation reasons? Are you doing it? And let's not even talk about money. Just take money out of the equation, because I don't think, don't think most people are motivated by money. They're motivated by the prestige attached to money. So, are you taking this job or this position because it will look good? If you are, that is a terrible reason to do it. Terrible reason. Extrinsic motivation like that, money, prestige, all those other things, they they'll get you in the door. They won't get you much further. You, 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 they will not sustain you. Only intrinsic motivation will sustain you. Can I end with a little quote from the Bhagavad Gita? Always good to end with the Bhagavad Gita. This is the Hindu holy book. And to paraphrase, so there's this epic battle and Lord Krishna is constantly arguing. He's about to go into battle. He's afraid. And, and the advice is, in so many words to Arjun, is put 100% effort, and I would add attention to what you're doing, but have exactly 0% invested in the results, which is really, really hard to do, right? Because, you know, you put 100% into something, you're like, I want it to turn out. But if you can do that, put 100%, effort and attention to what you're doing and not really care about the results. Maybe they'll come, maybe they won't. You know, let that part go. But just be in the moment. Be in the moment. Be in the, in the it doesn't mean not trying and not, it doesn't mean not caring. Some people misinterpret that as, oh, that's just apathy. You know, you don't care about how things turn out. You know, we can't, there's so much in life that we cannot control. Can't control, we can control our health a little bit, but you know, Healthy, athletic people get cancer at age 30. Bad shit happens. Um, Career-wise, there can be downturns in the economy you can't control. And if you try to control everything and you try to micromanage your career trajectory, and if you even use terms like career trajectory, you're in trouble. Uh, You're going to be an unhappy person. So put 100% into it, but don't tie your happiness to results. Tie your happiness to the effort and attention you put to something. It's okay to get upset with yourself that you didn't put enough effort into something. You didn't pay attention. That you should control. The rest, up to the guy. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.